devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi everyone. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, depending on your location. Welcome to Beer with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. This is the podcast series and monthly seminar series that features the ideas, research, and philosophies of the uh, members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our organization, you can visit us on the web at bmsis.org. We are a nonprofit virtual research uh, institute focused on Earth system science, astrobiology, and the future of humanity. Today, we have the esteemed uh, David Grinspoon as our speaker. Um, but first, uh, Sanjoy Som is going to introduce us to a new beverage. Now, before I uh, pass things off to Sanjoy, I will remind you to uh, respect the local laws of your land and only drink if you are of age. Sanjoy. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, hello, everybody. The beer uh, for this month I chose is called the People's Porter. I figured it was appropriate because I'm applying for a green card, and this beer has Uncle Sam very prominently displayed on the label. <laughs> um, it is brewed by the Santa Cruz Mountain Brewing Company in Santa Cruz, California. It's a small operation. And this porter is unique, I think, because it is brewed with organic fair trade, organic coffee beans, and that are cold pressed as well as locally roasted at the brewery. So the beer is caffeinated, <laughs> which is nice. And uh, the beans give the beer a really nice, crisp, dry finish. Uh, the body of the beer is deep and rich with a hint of sweetness, but the smoky overtones bring out the, uh, the coffee beans. Also, vanilla beans are used in the brewing process, so all these combine to bringing a very coffee-rich flavor on this porter. It is quite delicious. Uh, it has an alcohol by volume of 5% and an international bitterness unit of 26. So with that, cheers. And uh, it is also a great pleasure of introducing uh, Dr. David Grinspoon, who is with us today. He received his PhD in planetary science from the University of Arizona and is a strong advocate for astrobiology as well as science communication. In addition to sitting on the board of advisors of our nonprofit, uh, Dr. Grinspoon is the Baruch S. Blumberg Chair of Astrobiology at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., as well as the Curator for Astrobiology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He has published two popular books. The first one is called Venus Revealed, A New Look Below the Clouds of Our Mysterious Twin Planet. And the second, published in 2004, called Lonely Planet, The Natural Philosophy of Alien Life. David, thank you so much for your support over the years of our nonprofit, and welcome to our program. Well, thanks a lot. This is really a pleasure for me. Thank, thanks for inviting me. And to the extent that I am with you, it's a pleasure to be with all of you <laughs> this afternoon. Uh, I was just thinking how it's strange that the way this technology both connects and disconnects us. Um, on the one hand, we can have this, this meeting where we're all in a way together without building up a big carbon footprint. On the other hand, I'm sitting here like a crazy person talking to a piece of technology in an empty room. But um, I'm going to prefer to uh, picture you all uh, sitting around this room with me here in the Library of Congress. I'm looking out the window and I can see the Supreme Court across the street and shake my fist at it for all of you, um, <laughs> as the case may be. And um, unfortunately, following the, the law, I'm not allowed to actually drink a beer here in the Library of Congress, but I can assure you that some of these ideas that I'll be discussing have been worked out in various states of intoxication, as will probably be more than evident. And um, seriously, this is great for me because these are ideas that I'm still working out, and I'm in the middle of a, a new uh, book project, and uh, so it's really valuable for me to kind of put some of this out there and, and uh, get your uh, feedback. I'm really interested in um, input on uh, sort of the, the things that I'm thinking about, because I know a lot of you have thought deeply and very creatively about a lot of the 
the same things. Um, so the subject of my um, of my talk this afternoon, and re really the subject of my um, research for the year that I'm here as the chair of astrobiology at the Library of Congress, is the Anthropocene era as seen through the lens of astrobiology. And I think for a lot of us, it's sort of obvious what astrobiology has to do with the Anthropocene. It's been interesting for me to see the reaction of other scholars in this sort of maybe emerging new field of Anthropocene studies their reaction when I tell them that I'm an astrobiologist interested in the Anthropocene, because a lot of them at first, they say, well, why? What does that have to do with, with our field? Uh, one of the great things about being here in, in Washington uh, is that I'm meeting people from a lot of different fields who are interested in this topic. There are environmental historians studying the Anthropocene. There are geographers, earth scientists, and... I've actually convened a couple uh, sort of informal meetings of, of local people, a paleontologist, uh, human origins people, the Smithsonian. And when I tell them that, that I'm doing this, their first reaction is always, well, what does astrobiology have to, have to do with this? But, but to me, it's, it's, it's really kind of obvious uh, and, I, and I think a valuable way to think about it because one, one way of framing what astrobiology is about is – the relationship between life and planets, studying the relationship between life and planets. Now, we can argue, okay, life doesn't always have to be planetary, but for now, that's, that's a reasonable, pretty broad focus. And it's clear to me that the Anthropocene is a new chapter in the relationship between life and the planet here on Earth. And even looking beyond Earth, we can think about whether there may be analogous developments to the Anthropocene happening elsewhere. Uh, and that, that's useful because it makes us really think about what's, what's essential about this, this transition we're going through and maybe not just particular to our location here on Earth. Okay, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what the Anthropocene is and trying to convince you that it's here. I think most people that have thought a lot about the planet and planets as I know many of you have, are really aware that something new is happening on Earth that is unprecedented over its long history. And at this point, when I give a talk, I show the, the image of the Earth at night with all the lit-up continents and lit-up networks of and coastal cities and just point out that if you had been watching the Earth for billions of years... We can talk, of course, about atmospheric composition, CO2, as well as various um, oxides of nitrogen, methane, ozone. Uh, you can talk about changes in land surface, albedo, deforestation. Uh, you can talk about the hyd hydro hydrologic system. Uh, humans have radically altered the hydrologic system of Earth. In fact, Here's a startling fact for you. The amount of water in reservoirs, in behind dams, human-constructed reservoirs on Earth now, the amount of fresh water in all the reservoirs of Earth is five times the amount of fresh water in all the streams on Earth right now. So there's really no doubt that, that humans have radically changed the Earth and that humans have... Uh, in a sense, become a new kind of geological force on Earth. And David, if yeah. I may interject, there was one other striking example I heard recently. Apparently, yeah. there is now more boat in the ocean than there is fish. The, the mass of boat is larger than the mass of fish? Yes. That's great. That's, uh, that's, that's an amazing example. Thank you. Um, that is, that's, that's really striking. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, we could... We could easily spend the hour going through um, all, all the dramatic evidence, but let's let's move on. So, um, so yes, we are in a new era, um, and then then there you know there, there's this debate about whether it should be officially officially designated as the geologic era that we're in now or the epoch that we're in now. And you know the International Commission on Stratigraphy is taking up this question, and to me that's really a pretty boring debate. Uh, akin to 
whether the International Astronomical Union understands what a planet is or not, which I actually don't think they do, but at least they're, <laughs> they haven't done a very good job of defining it. But, but to me, it's just not very that interesting whether or not it gets officially designated. I mean, it, you know, it'll be interesting to, to watch that. But the point is that uh, it's sort of obvious that we are in this new era. And, and that perspective, I think, is valuable. And so, uh, you know, I'll follow that deliberation, but what, it, which is currently under, under debate, but whether or not it gets officially adapted as, as a geologic, as part of the geologic timescale, it, it doesn't, to me, sort of change the import of the, um, the perspective that it can bring to, uh, to thinking about human, the human presence on Earth. And what, one way of looking at the, uh, the time that we're at and I'll come back to this in a little bit more detail in a few minutes, is that we're at this sort of precarious time where we clearly have global impact, but we don't really have global control. There's nobody home <laughs> at the, uh, at the uh, control room where, where uh, the decisions are being made about what to do with this planet by humanity. It's being done kind of unconsciously, and yet we're, we're clearly doing major things to our planet. Um, for, for reasons I'll, I'll come back to, I regard that as, uh, as, as a brief phase, ultimately, the phase where we, have, um, where we have global agency but not global control. It's an unstable situation, and I don't think it will last. Let me go to the first column on this handout, these uh, visuals that I've provided, because uh, let me explain what some of these images mean. If you look at, if you look at this, uh, the images stacked upon the left side, there's a, uh, an artist's conception of, a, of an impact event, there's a green leaf, there's a traffic jam, and there is a, a series of global maps of uh, representing ozone, changing ozone concentration over the years, the, the ozone hole. And these are meant to be symbolic representations of what I am calling the four kinds of planetary change. If you look at Earth history, what's happening on Earth now at the hands of humanity is in a certain sense just one in a series of dramatic global changes that have been occurring since and even before there was life on Earth. So it's interesting to ask, in what sense is this change really new and different? And in order to take a crack at that, I've developed uh, or I'm developing a sort of a taxonomy of catastrophe where I talk about the four different kinds of uh, planetary change. And they're classified in reference to... Um, the role that life plays in these changes. So the image at the top of the impact is meant to represent what I call planetary changes of the first kind or natural disasters or shit happens. In other words, these are things that happen to a planet that life has no causal relationship with. Life is not implicated at all. Well, they just happen. And the obvious example is something big from space comes and hits the Earth. And in the case of the famous KT impactor, can cause a mass extinction. Uh, there are other examples, uh, large igneous provinces, um, super plumes in the mantle that cause a spurt of geologic activity and a big climate change. Uh, plate tectonics shifting the uh, mo continental drift, shifting the, um, the positions of the continents around and um, causing changes to the climate and other changes in, in that way. So that's, so that's the first category. Life uh, doesn't have anything to do with it. What I call uh, planetary changes of the, the second kind are biologically induced changes in which life itself radically changes the planet, sometimes with dire consequences for other species. And this is symbolized by the leaf because a, a great example of this is, is uh, the great oxygenation event, which was something like 2.2 billion years ago when those irresponsible cyanobacteria came along, polluted the entire planet with dangerous oxygen, and in fact made, made life unlivable for, uh, for many species. It, it was arguably the, the most radical chemical change ever to have happen on our planet. 
Uh, and it was done by the cyanobacteria. So don't let anyone ever tell you that humans are the first species to come along and radically change the planet in the quest for a new energy source because it's, it's happened, uh, it happened long before we came along. By the way, this is also believed by many to have precipitated a huge climate disaster when uh, the, the, um, it may be the cause of the first um, massive snowball Earth event when the Earth was uh, globally glaciated, essentially because the oxygen collapsed a methane greenhouse that was supporting the, uh, the climate at that time. So um, the cyanobacteria may have done a lot of damage. So the, uh, the third category of change I'm calling inadvertent change. And that's symbolized by the picture of the traffic jam here. And inadvertent change is uh, basically what we're doing to the Earth now. It's, uh, it's, it's when a clever species comes along and invents technology to solve local survival problems, but unknowingly and inadvertently change their, their planet and cause other and sometimes bigger problems. And one example of this is uh, the um, destruction of the ozone layer. Another example is obviously human-caused global warming, and there are um, actually a great number of problems, a n- number that fit in this category, some of which are, uh, haven't happened yet but are projected to happen in the future as, uh, as human influence increases on, on the Earth. Now, the bottom image on the left there is, is meant to uh, symbolize what I'm calling planetary changes of the fourth kind. And that's deliberate change, where intelligent life acts with forethought and awareness of um, the global consequences of their actions. And um, interestingly, I would say that, that there are examples of this that have already occurred. And, and a great example is um, fixing the ozone layer, where uh, this problem was detected, international agreements were made, and um, it's not totally fixed, but we're on the path toward fixing it. So that's a nice example of kind of deliberate uh, global change, or what I would call planetary changes of the fourth kind. Other examples are um, obviously fixing global warming, which um, has not occurred yet, but uh, is under discussion. Uh, And when I say fixing, um, there's a lot of shades of that, um, because there are aspects of that trajectory that we are already on and can't easily get off, but, but uh, well, I, I won't get into the shades of that yet, but other examples are uh, deflecting a dangerous asteroid heading toward Earth, the top kind of, of disaster, the natural disasters. Um, many of them don't ever have, have to happen again if we move to this fourth kind of global change. And um, my brother, who's a, who's a doctor, I was discussing this with him the other day, and he pointed out to me that, um, that the elimination of, of smallpox is... Uh, arguably an example of this, um, that uh, it's, a, it's a, a global change that was done um, deliberately. And, uh, and I think also in this category goes the, uh, the terraforming of Mars. We could get into whether or not we think that's a good idea or not ethically, but just the fact that this has been under discussion by scientists, it fits in this category because it's an example of deliberately changing a planet. And even though I I have mixed feelings about whether terraforming Mars is a good idea, especially in our current ignorance, I think it's a great idea that people are discussing it and thinking about how would we deliberately change a planet? Because uh, Mars makes a good thought experiment because ultimately that's what we're going to have to do with Earth to survive in the long run, whether we like it or not. So that's my my categorization of planetary change. And... um, the sort of point of this is to um, suggest that this planetary change of the third kind, this inadvertent kind of change that we're engaged in now is uh, inherently unstable and that if a species wants to survive for a long time on a planet, once it develops global technology with the capacity to change a planet, then, then um, it, um, it will absolutely need to develop the capacity for uh, deliberate change, uh, planetary changes of the, the fourth kind. And I see us now as uh, somewhere along that transition, and that 
in a very broad sense, is our task. This leads to some other questions, and I, I don't want to take up too much time because I want to get to the discussion part of this. But one question that it's led me to is what I call the mystery of intention. It's, you know, we're, we're talking about the need to uh, develop intentionality on a global scale. And that leads me to ask, well, what really is intentionality? If you think about it, it's very weird that even on an individual scale that a bunch of cells interacting with one another in, in a human nervous system can um, apparently make intentional decisions about how to... Uh, change its environment. Um, that is a weird thing, but, but, but it does seem to be a, a quality that we have as individuals and maybe even as small groups. And so if we're talking about developing it on a global scale, it's interesting to kind of break it down and say, well, what really is the nature of intention? So I've been looking a little bit into that sort of philosophy of mind kind of stuff and, and trying to understand that because if we're going to try to develop this on a global scale, we need to sort of understand what, what it is. And then another theme that I'm developing that's related is, is kind of the concept of planetary intelligence. I've been very influenced by the, the Gaia hypothesis, which is, in a very broad sense, the idea that life is not inherently um, a local phenomena, that there are aspects of a biosphere that are inherently global. Life may have started off local and then become a global system. And I'm interested in the, in the analogous development of, of global intelligence. Is there such a thing that can develop on a planet, which is essentially maybe what we're trying to do, of a kind of global intelligence? And I, I'm obviously not the first person to think about this, and people wonder if the Internet itself is becoming a kind of um, global nervous system and so forth. But this is one of the things that I'm, I'm looking at, if, uh, if this development... If this transition from global change to the third kind to the, the, the fourth kind um, involves the development of intelligence as, as a global property, and what does that mean? And one way that I'm um, going about this, and, and this is somewhat related to a, a project that I know um, that uh, several of you have been involved in that I followed with great interest uh, about um, the... Uh, what you've called um, the um, sustainability solution to the Fermi paradox. Um, the idea that our future on Earth is connected with um, the question of the prevalence of, of uh, intelligent civilizations out there is, um, is, I think, a very fertile idea and, and is one that can, at the very least, can help us sort of abstract the question of what's happening on Earth and see if we can sort of generalize it um, to what may be happening on other planets that develop complex life, and then maybe turn it around and, and ask, can that perspective and wonder if it may be a, a universal challenge? And I, and I think that in, that in some sense it probably is, because I think that, um, that arguably when a uh, species on any planet develops technology, if they get to that point, then it's quite likely that they will bring crises upon themselves, global crises, because the immediate application of uh, technology at first um, doesn't obviously have global consequences. And it's in the nature of life to, uh, I think, to reproduce exponentially, increase population, uh, increase um, the effort to control one's environment as a survival tool. And those imperatives, if they are such, will ultimately lead to this sort of global series of unintended consequences. And so while the path may not be, surely won't be the same in detail as the path that we've taken to this point, I think something analogous to this Anthropocene crisis arguably maybe or will or has played out on other worlds. And, and so thinking about the prevalence of civilizations out there um, is a really interesting way to think about this question of, of longevity of civilizations, including our own. And, and this leads to one other concept that I'm, I, I just want to throw another, a couple more concepts out there at you, and then I'm going to stop and hopefully uh, we'll have some discussion. But, but one other question I've been playing with is, um, what is the Anthropocene? Is it, is it in, in a geological sense, is it an event 
Is it a phase or an epoch or is it a transition? If you look in the um, geological record, there are certain catastrophic changes that you can characterize as, in a geological sense, events. There's obviously a great example is the, uh, the KT impact and subsequent extinctions, um, which is represented by a centimeter-thick layer of clay in the marine sediments all around the world, an iridium-rich centimeter-thick clay layer. That was an event. There's a, uh, a before and an after, and it was a brief excursion. The Anthropocene could be an event like that. Clearly, we've done enough so that it will be detectable at least a long time from now, but, but will it persist? Well, so if it does persist, then it could be something more akin to, to an epoch, an era, uh, the, um, you know, the, the uh, Paleozoic, um, or, or being less ambitious, something like the, the Cretaceous, something that lasts for uh, you know, tens of millions of years. That may seem very ambitious, but it actually seems to me that, that it's even possible, conceivable, maybe even likely, that it's something else entirely, which is a transition. And when I say transition, I'm talking about there have been a few events in Earth history where the rules have fundamentally been changed. The origin of life is obviously one. Maybe the great oxygenation is one. So where, where before and after are fundamentally different. The rules, the rules change. I think the Cambrian explosion is arguably a transition. And it may be that the Anthropocene is a transition of this magnitude in the history of Earth. If this mechanism of change, of this intentional change, takes root, then the Earth may be for, forever transformed by, by uh, the action of... Uh, human intelligence or, or the descendants of human intelligence. And they may, you know, may even, maybe even be our machines. That's a whole other topic, but, but, but we may be laying the seeds for, if, if we can get through this, um, this bottleneck of the next century or few centuries, uh, which a lot of people have, have discussed our time in terms of, in terms of a bottleneck, there's a lot of um, potential survival challenges that are coming to a head in this next century as our population pushes against the carrying capacity uh, of, of the earth. And so we threaten our persistence, but, but we also potentially enable our persistence with, with technology. And again, uh, you know, a great example is the, um, the fact that there never has to be another asteroid-based extinction. And as Jim Hansen has pointed out, there never, ha- there never has to be another ice age. And it, another ice age really wouldn't be that much fun on an earth with over 5 billion people. So um, one interesting consequence of this kind of thinking is that you come up against these sort of ethical ideas about human agency. And a lot of people react strongly against the notion that, well, some people react strongly against even the notion that we are in control. But I see us as sort of reluctantly having become these... um, dominant agents on the earth, whether we like it or not, there's um, potentially a lot of arrogance in that idea, of course, but uh, it's almost a responsibility that we didn't ask for, but now that we have, in some sense, we are running this place, or we're semi-running this place, and and we don't have a choice of going back into the past and saying, ah, we didn't really like doing that, let's Let's abandon this. Um, you know, the, the only way we have that choice is if we want to radically depopulate the Earth, which, which may happen anyways. But uh, there's no way that we can survive with anything like our current population without very um, intensive use of technology that is world-changing technology. So we've assumed this responsibility. And this makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable um, it harkens back to the, the sort of biblical, um, you know, having dominion over the earth, which, which I don't like. Uh, if anything, you think about the, the sort of what Carl Sagan talked about, the great demotions of our intellectual development, realizing that humans were not the center of the earth and that we're just animals like any other animals. And then realizing that the earth is not the center of the universe and, 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 and so on and so on that, 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 there's this sort of intellectual journey from thinking that we are, you know, the center of creation to realizing that we're nothing. But in a strange way, 
the Anthropocene, if you really think it through, almost reverses that because because we are running this planet, and we we need to run this planet. I think, and it's that's a jarring realization, and I don't know if we're up for it, but but I think that's the conclusion, and that that finally leads me to um, w- these images on the right side of this handout, and this is about ideas about our future and ideas about our role on Earth, and it's really about the metaphors we use when we talk about ourselves. One interesting spin-off of the Anthropocene is that there's, there's a, a renewed debate in the environmental community about the human role on Earth and the question of whether the goal of conservation should be to return us to some idealized past, to return us to true wilderness, or whether that's sort of being blind to the reality of Earth, that we live in a human-altered Earth and that we should not try to reverse that, but should find ways to allow nature to thrive and allow humans to thrive in that new partnership on a, um, on a human-made planet. And this is bothersome to some people, but I think it's also potentially really game-changing because it allows us to think about, rather than just berating ourselves and having this sort of misanthropic viewpoint that I think does unfortunately sometimes infect the environmental community where people get stuck up get stuck on talking about how horrible humans are of maybe saying okay we've made some mistakes we are not completely comfortable with what we've done on earth but maybe we need to try to come up with some positive visions for uh, how we can proceed in the future because i think pessimism can be deeply corrosive and and Pessimism, pessimism in the absence of, uh, of certain knowledge is actually, I think, kind of irresponsible. And I think, I think, in a way, in our environmentalism and a lot of our thinking about the future, we've gotten stuck in this cycle of pessimism. And, and so these images on the right are about the metaphors we use to think about hu- the human role on Earth. And you hear a lot about metaphors of disease and of, cr- and of crime. So that's why I have a picture of cancer cells and of these um, hapless prisoners, these criminals in this. Sorry, that's a stupid picture, but I wanted to represent crime. But anyways, you hear about uh, how humans are a virus and humans are a cancer, or you hear about these great crime, the metaphors of crime that we're, we're raping the earth or we're, we're um, committing the greatest mass murder of, of uh, biomes ever in history. And, and, and you know, these, these metaphors are understandable. They have a certain truth to them. There is something in our re- our pattern of um, reproduction and our pattern of of, uh, of our artifacts on the earth that is virus-like in its growth. And there, you know, there when you when I hear about the um, the African elephants being um, driven to extinction because people in China want to have nice ivory artifacts, um, you know that that or, or what we're doing to the various forests because we want to have um, hardwood guitars or whatever. I mean, there are aspects of these that that are crimes. And yet, I think that we need to also find a way to reframe our relationship with nature and sort of move beyond this point of berating ourselves and and being down on ourselves and see if we can come up with a a more sympathetic view for the role of humans. And and an obvious one, and one that I've used before and other people have used, is is to talk about how we're, we're in our sort of adolescence. You know, we're these these promising young creatures that are in this have these new powers that they haven't quite um, come to grips with yet, and I think that's a good one. But here, here's another one. I've been um, going back and rereading some of my favorite science fiction, and uh, that's why this Heinlein book, Orphans of the Sky, is here because there's a um, a common theme in science fiction uh, is the generation ship, and the generation ship is a response to the fact that it may be true that in order to make interstellar journeys, you need a voyage that's longer than a human life may ultimately not be true, but um, but there are reasons to think that it could be true. And so the idea is that you build these ships where multiple generations make the journey and the people reaching the destination are the descendants of the people who set out on this journey. And then in the plot of, of these generation ship stories, uh, something always goes wrong and there's a you know, a revolution or a mutiny or a mechanical failure and the, and the people lose their connection with their historical past and they don't realize they're on a ship anymore and they just think it's the world 
and then and then usually some characters come along and they figure out that they're on a ship. They find a control room or they find a porthole and they look out and they see the stars and they say, whoa, what's going on here? Um, we're on a ship. And they have this, this awakening and they have to, they have to convince the others. This is our, our reality. We've seen the stars. Uh, we're all traveling somewhere on this multi-generational journey. And we're on this thing that we're actually in control of, but we don't really know how to drive it, but we have to wake up and, and, and figure out how to do this. And I, I sort of think of that as a metaphor for our situation on, on earth now, you know, now we've seen the stars and we know what they are and we're starting to appreciate what this planet we're on really is and what our role in it is. And we didn't really ask for this and we don't have a manual. We don't know how this thing works, but we have to figure it out and have to, um, have to drive this thing. And so in a certain sense, we are on a generation ship. And so our task is to, uh, to wake up and figure out how to do, do a good job of this. And, and um, I actually, um, maybe it's foolish, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I think that we're early in this journey. I think there are massive changes in um, global consciousness occurring and uh, massive changes in the way that we're connected to one another. And um, certainly there, uh, it's a perilous time in our history as a species and, and even the history of the planet. But I don't think we're doomed. And I think that we have both the responsibility and the possibility of figuring out how to do the Anthropocene right. And I hope that the perspective of astrobiology can be, you know, of, of assistance in that journey. So maybe I'll stop there. Well, thanks a lot, David. That was excellent. It gave us uh, probably enough to think about for uh, the next three to four weeks there. Um, I guess we'll open it up for questions. I'll start with just one. Uh, you, you, I'm curious what you think about um, geoengineering and, and that idea, how we might control the, the environment. And you sort of alluded it to in a, in a couple things you said. Um, there's obviously some big ethical thing, you know, concerns to at least think about with that. Um, but if we are managing or caretaking taking the planet, um, what are sort of limits in your mind to how far that should go? It's a great question because geoengineering obviously fits in that, that sort of fourth category of activity of the intentional change. And I think that ultimately in the long run, we have to do geoengineering. Uh, I, I mentioned, you know, we don't really want there to be another ice age. Uh, and, um, you know, arguably, um, you know, stopping an asteroid, which would by itself come and, and, and do great damage is, is a kind of geoengineering. So, so ultimately, in the long run, I think that we have to get comfortable with that. At the same time, I'm very wary of these sort of quick fix schemes that some people have. No, I don't think we should just go and dump a bunch of iron in the, in the uh, northern Pacific. And no, I don't think we should, uh, you know, throw a bunch of uh, aerosols in the upper atmosphere and um, try to uh, decrease the uh, the amount of solar radiation, because we don't really know what we're doing <laughs> yet. I think that in the long run, it uh, needs to be our goal to really understand the Earth system and our role in it in a deep way, and that we are going to have to develop those capacities, but that we, we can't be reckless about it. And clearly, the first step is to get control of some of the things we're doing now where we're inadvertently changing the atmosphere and inadvertently um, doing things to, you know, um, doing extreme things with land use and with, with the oceans. And, um, you know, we, we need to control ourselves. And then ultimately, I think we will need to move into controlling the earth and in a, in a deeper way um, to ensure survival. And I mean, because ultimately, if you go to a much longer time scale, of course, the Earth will become uninhabitable as uh, the sun warms in, in, you know, over billions of years now. Although some recent results by uh, Rob, Ravi, uh, I'm not going to pronounce his last name. Co Koparapu. How do, I, how do you pronounce Ravi's last name? Koparapu. Sorry. By Ravi Koparapu and, and Jim Casting uh, now suggests that we're maybe closer to the inner edge of the habitable zone than we thought. Maybe, the, you know, we don't have quite as long. But, but the point is, ultimately, um, the, uh, the Earth by itself is, is not completely benign. It's capricious. And over the long run, in order to ensure habitability for ourselves and for the other 
creatures we share this planet with, I think we will have to move to manipulating the planet. But I think we have to be very cautious and careful. And there's sort of a continuum of, you know, less radical and more radical changes. And, and on the near term, I wouldn't urge action, but I think study, studying these things is important. And, um, you know, the first step is to sort of stop kind of blindly stumbling about and crashing around and breaking the China in this shop we're in because we're, you know, we're not stepping carefully. Thanks. Thanks. So the floor is open. Uh, if anyone else has any questions for David. David, this is Sanjoy. Um, and so I'm wondering, this is probably a, a naive and optimistic statement, but do you think like the Anthropocene will have an end in the sense that as we over time acquire more and more technology with Moore's law, that will become so good at having a large population living on a planet with very little environmental impact that the geological remnants of the Anthropocene would um, dissipate over time. I, I understand it's going to get probably a lot worse before it gets better, but will it get better? I, I think it's a, it's a really good question, and it gets to this um, to this question of what really is the Anthropocene, and and you know there. There isn't really consensus about that. I've seen it referred to and as, again, it gets to this question of, is it, you know, is it an event or is it a transition? And um, one way of categorizing it that I've um, played around with, and I think I wrote about this in Sky and Telescope, is that in a certain sense, you could call the phrase we're in now the proto-Anthropocene, this phase where we have global impacts, but no real global control. Um, and then maybe we move into a sort of more mature Anthropocene where um, there is some level of anticipation and control and, a, you know, a deeper knowledge of the earth and a deeper knowledge of ourselves. Um, and so I think that this this phase that we're in now, this proto-Anthropocene or, or um, you know, reckless, unconscious Anthropocene, whatever you want to call it, will clearly have an end. It's it's not stable. Uh, you know, we're, we're using resources and we're um, changing... The, the atmosphere and other aspects of the environment at such, and increasing our population in such a rate that, you know, something's got to give. And so the phase we're in now um, cannot be long-lived. Uh, it will either end in, um, you know, some kind of catastrophe where, um, you know, I don't think we're not going to wipe out the human race, but we could conceivably um, uh, wipe out our civilization and revert to some, some um, other kind of uh, existence. Or uh, we will make the transition into um, sort of a more wise application of global technology, which is, you know, the, I think the, what a lot of us are interested in, in promoting. And, um, and in that sense, the phase that we are in would certainly end. Now, this other, this other phase, um, it, it's a question of terminology. I'd like to, I'm, I'm kind of, toying with calling that the true Anthropocene and what we're in now, the proto-Anthropocene, in other words, because I like the idea of the Anthropocene being a hopeful vision of what we can be and what we're striving to be. And in that sense, if, if we adopt that kind of terminology, then I would say it doesn't necessarily have to have an end, but we're, we're, we're definitely in the beginning of something. I can go off of that one a little bit. In some sense, this proto-Anthropocene has been going for several thousand years, right? You can look back and say the deforestation sections of Europe and so on had large-scale climatic effects. Just nobody realized the connection at the time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's another... Um, the way I see it, there are five Anthropocene debates. <laughs> I've written a list of five of them. And one of them is, when did it start? And that's an interesting one. Um, you know, in a certain sense, it, you know, from a phenomenolo from phenomenological sense, it, it almost doesn't matter because we're in it now. But it is interesting. And some people put the beginning at the beginning of the industrial revolution when, you know, we started to really amplify our effects. Some people put it more recently at what they call the great acceleration post world war two, when all of these things really started to get out of whack. And, and an interesting date then might be the, the date of the, uh, the testing of the first, the first atmospheric uh, atomic bomb test, because not only is that symbolically um, appropriate, perhaps, but it also had left an isotopic signature that could be dug up, one would imagine, at some later point. But another candidate is, as you say, thousands of years ago, really, when we started to first alter the planet, and basically when we started agriculture and started deforestation and changing land use, and, um, you know, some people put the beginning of um, anthropogenic global warming um, at um, a date several thousand years ago when we started... Um, modifying the atmosphere 
um, through uh, through agriculture. So, uh, the, I mean, these are all legitimate ideas, and um, I don't have a strong opinion. Maybe I should on which is the best beginning of the Anthropocene. I think again, if you look at it on a geological time scale, and I think you know that's that's really one of the value the valuable contributions that this notion of the Anthropocene makes to the subject of 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 humans coming to know themselves is is allowing us to see ourselves in a geological time scale and when you look on that time frame all those times we just mentioned are virtually simultaneous you know they're all in like the sort of smudge of the pencil mark that you you draw the beginning of the anthropocene and extend it off into the geological future you know that they, they all they're all within a few thousand years of each other and therefore geologically kind of simultaneous so i think uh it's an interesting question to debate over a beer but i i'm not sure it really matters what date you put on the beginning of it so by the way since i mentioned there are five anthropocene debates i'll tell you what they are one are we in it the answer is yes is it officially a geological time period the answer is who cares (laughs) when did it start what we were just discussing um how do you pronounce it because there's anthropocene and Anthropocene and Anthropocene, and the answer to that is who cares? And then, do we need to def- do we need to redefine the nature of nature? And that's what I was getting at with these these sort of metaphors and changing ideas of conservation. And to me, that's really the most interesting Anthropocene debate. Hey, David, thanks a lot. That was a really uh, really cool discussion we've had. So I, I have two things. The, the first one is kind of a a simple one, which is just a, a recommendation. Um, for uh, for a book, I don't know if you've read um, "Revolutions That Made the Earth" by uh, Tim Linton and Andy Watson. I have not. Thank you. I'm writing this down. And we you know what's great is that being here at the Library of Congress, I can literally um, turn around to this other computer and go on the catalog that has everything and click, and it shows up on my desk the next morning. It's really oh. the interesting thing about being a scholar here. So it's "Revolutions That Made the Earth." Revolutions That Made the Earth by uh, Lenton and Watson. It's kind of, um, they, they styled it as a, uh, as a pop science book, but it's actually, uh, it's well-referenced enough. I used it as a, actually a textbook in a class that, that Tim Lenton originally uh, worked on. I, I taught it last year. It, it talked about a, a lot of the, um, the sort of ideas you talked about in the first part of this talk of looking at the major revolutions in Earth system and sort of trying to categorize them and describe them and look at general categories in a way that I think would be uh, I think you'd like, um, and I think it would be of, of interest to uh, to everyone who's listening. So that's why why I put it out. Great, thank you. Uh, the, the second one is I think a really it's kind of a tricky question. I have trouble even mentioning it here. I would never say this at work, especially at UEA, where I currently am right now. Um, but it's something that you, you brought up with in in the, the second part when you were discussing sort of the metaphors that, if you will, the, the hippie environmentalists have brought us, like the cancer and the, the, the crime. And, you know, that's just the realization, though, that when you look at Earth history, we are in a really strange period of earth history independent of the Anthropocene. I'm talking about the last few million years of, you know, crazy, almost out of control oscillatory glaciations uh, that if you look over the entire 4.6 billion years of the planet, right, we're really in only um, <clears throat> possibly the, the, the third or, or fourth time when there've been massive low level uh, continental ice sheets <clears throat> over most of, uh, of the planet. And, you, you know, so we're in this interesting, you know, fifth sort of oscillation. And, and you, you mentioned the point that we were maybe about to go back into another full, um, uh, f- full ice age. And we have pushed ourselves out of it as a result of this inadvertent uh, phase, phase three um, type, uh, type situation. But yeah, I mean, you can certainly argue that, you know, I'll just make the, the, the bland statement that, that if you look at the global system that, that Earth has been in through, through most of the last at least two and a half billion years, it's been this sort of more of a greenhouse, uh, much warmer climate uh, than has been at any time in the last two million years. So it'd be interesting to try to discuss that when as we can, as scientists uh, and as Earth systems scientists, can actually discuss if, you know, at what point it's possibly, you know, 
maybe better to be in a, a greenhouse world rather than a oscillating out of control ice house world. Yeah, a really interesting question. I mean, once we realize our agency and ultimately, um, you know, get, get this sort of more mature handle on what we're doing to this planet, then the question becomes what, what is optimum? And, and, and I, I don't think we know the answer to that. And yeah, I mean, obviously, um, I think, you know, having most of the, uh, North America under a mile of ice is not optimum. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's, kind of nice to be in a somewhat greenhouse world. And then, you know, I, I, it's, it, it's a great question. And yeah, it is funny how you say that, you know, it's, it's sort of become un-PC in a certain sense to ask that, but that's, that's really a shame, you know, the way that it would be, it would be scientific suicide really to say it in some places, but I mean, you know, yeah, really. It's a shame that these things have become polarized in this way, you know, because, uh, it's, it, it's a great question. And it, and it does seem that, um, and in a certain sense, um, you know, humanity's been been kind of lucky, or I don't know if lucky because maybe it's not a, all a coincidence, but that our civilization has been created in a kind of unusual um, cl- time of uh, of climate, and um, so you know, we we take for granted conditions that are actually um, not normal. I'm actually let me recommend a book. I'm reading a a book that I really like right now. I'm halfway through. It's called Rambunctious Garden. An, an environmental writer named Emma Maris, and um, she makes the point. She she talks about this a lot. That that you know about the sort of romanticization of some set point in the past that we want to return the Earth to, but there actually is no set point, and it, it raises some some questions along the lines of what what you were just raising. Cool. Thanks. Hey, um, I, can I um, read you guys a quote? Since I think we're probably close to having to wrap up. Yes, please do. That'd be a great way. Because I was just reading um, this awesome book that's um, by Jay, the um, the uh, f- famous, um, I, I believe he was a biochemist, J.D. Bernal, um, and uh, really brilliant guy. And this is a book he wrote in 1929. It was his first book. He wrote it when he was a very young man. It's called The World, the Flesh, and the Devil. And this is the end of the book. I'm going to read you a paragraph that's the the very end of the book. We hold the future still timidly, but perceive it for the first time as a function of our own action. Having seen it, are we to turn away from something that offends the very nature of our earliest desires? Or is the recognition of our new powers sufficient to change these desires into the service of the future, which they will have to bring about? J.D. Bernal. 1929. Thanks, David. Those are inspiring words to end on. Um, I want to thank you once again for joining us here. It's been a fascinating conversation. Listeners, remember to uh, check us out online at bmsis.org slash podcast and tune in again next month for our conversation. Everybody, it's been a blast. Yeah, it's been great, David. Thanks a lot. Thanks, David. See you, everyone. Silence replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.